I will read the inscription to begin with. To the chief musician set to do not destroy a miktam of David. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in your heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ears, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually when he bends his bow. Let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a small, excuse me, like a snail which melts away as it goes. Like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. And Father, we pray that, Lord, you would have your way in our hearts as we are before you tonight, as we read your word, as we go through this 58th Psalm, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us, even as he has drawn praises and worship from our hearts and through our lips. Lord, might he also give us understanding of these words, understanding on what you mean by these things and how they apply to our lives. How are we to walk with you? How are we to order our lives as a result of knowing these truths? So, God, speak to us clearly, we pray. And might you be exalted, might you be lifted up in our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we look at this 58th Psalm, we, we do find that there are several things that we see um, familiar to us in the inscription. Um, to the chief musician, we've seen that dozens and dozens of times as we've gone through the first uh, 57 and now the 58th Psalm. Uh, and as we've shared with you, this would have been handed over to the, the person who was directing the, the worship for that particular um, Sabbath day uh, in the synagogue. Also, we see the term uh, set to set to not destroy. We saw that in the last psalm, Psalm 57, a couple of weeks ago, uh, set to do not destroy. And uh, that could mean one of two things. Either there was a song called Do Not Destroy, and David's intention is w would have been that they would sing the song according to that particular tune, the, 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 the uh, uh, melody and so forth. Or it could just simply be because the words set to are not in the inscription in the original Hebrew. 
It just simply says, do not destroy. And perhaps that was something that, that came from David's heart. The last, the last time we were in the 57th Psalm, we, we suggested that uh, perhaps uh, that was a, a reference to David's heart as, as it was expressed, as his heart was expressed when he refused to kill Saul. Remember, if you look back in Psalm 57 at the inscription, it said, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. So um, he was fleeing from Saul. He's got do not destroy in his mind in the sense of he does, certainly doesn't want to be destroyed. But he had an opportunity, you remember, right, to, to kill King Saul and he refused to do so. You know, perhaps this was just simply an expression of his heart at that particular point in time. Here, of course, in the context of this particular psalm, it wouldn't have been expressing David's heart, but he would have been expressing perhaps a desire on his, uh, toward his enemies to not, not to destroy him. We can't know for certain what that means, but uh, I think that's a fairly good uh, suggestion. And, of course, we see a miktam of David, as we saw last time, a miktam of David. There are... Um, Six different miktams of David in the Psalms, going all the way back to Psalm 16, and then five in a row here that we're in right now, uh, uh, Psalm 56 through Psalm 60. So a total of five, uh, six of them, uh, miktams of David. The word miktam, um, many scholars believe that it's a word that means golden, and it would most likely refer to David's own heart toward the psalm after he completed it, that this is a golden psalm or, or a precious psalm. And, and I can certainly understand that, can't you? I mean, just in the context of these psalms, like 56 through 60, we, we've seen that these all have to do with him hiding out from, from King Saul and running from him, being delivered by God, having an opportunity you know, to kill him and so forth. But these are just precious psalms to David as he writes concerning the way that God was watching over and protecting him. So perhaps that's why he called them miktams or golden. In the text of the psalm, let, let's read verses 1 through 5 once again. And we'll take a look at those five verses together. David writes, Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Now, Silent ones is, is what we see in the New King James Version. If you've got a New American Standard Bible or an ESV, any of you have one of those Bibles that you're reading from? Then it says gods, right? Uh, others just simply say rulers. The NIV says rulers. It's worded differently in a different order, but it speaks of, of rulers. Um, and and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Here in the New King James uh, you silent ones. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in your heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ears, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. David writing is obviously directing these words toward 
someone, some person or a group of people, it would seem a group of people, uh, who are speaking words of judgment against him. And it would seem that this would be in reference to, now, we can't be sure because it's not worded here uh, in the inscription like we have in the, the uh, psalms around this, uh, this 58th psalm. We can't be sure of the occasion for his writing. I, I, I think, though, we can assume that it is written around the same time as the other ones while David was running from King Saul during that period of time. If that is the case, now we can't, you know, be certain of that, so we can't, you know, be really hard line about that. You know, we can't. But I think it certainly fits what we see here. Uh, this would be written to King Saul and those who were in King Saul's camp, those men that he had around him who were basically against David and chasing him down and so forth. He obviously is speaking these words, uh, David is writing these words toward those particular individuals, or if it were perhaps written after he had already become king against his enemies, whether they were inside of Israel. Every leader in a country has his enemies within the country, doesn't he? That, that we just know that to be true from, from history. Or it could have been uh, leaders of other nations, perhaps, who were after him. We, we, we can't be real, real certain about it, but he's writing it to those who are bringing judgment against him. Because he says, do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? Uh, other, I, I mentioned to you that other translations say the words, is rather than silent ones, or you silent ones, uh, you, you gods, um, rulers, judges, might be one word that could be used. And as we see those different words being used in different translations from different uh, manuscripts that the, that the uh, uh, translation is coming out of or, 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 or done on, you know, we, we, we see that, that there, there, we just see some differences there. And, and I just want to mention to you guys that you know, over the years, um, there have been teachers in the word-faith movement who have claimed that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we who've been made children of God, really are little gods. And this is one of those passages in which men may perhaps be referred to as gods, as we see in the NASB and the ESV version, that, that translation uh, from that manuscript, saying that we who have um, been made right by God and a part of his family, we're not just children of the king, we are also little gods, and as little gods, we have power like God. Maybe not as much, but similar kinds of powers. They, they will say those kinds of things, and there's no basis for that whatsoever. No basis for that at all. 
we've got to be very careful about where we go with these words. Let's take this in the context of what he's saying here. Because as that word is used, and, and God's might be an accurate translation of the manuscript that, that is used for the ESV and the NASB version of the Bible. However, as we look at the context, the immediate words following are, do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? So David is calling these silent ones also sons of men, or if God's is the right word, sons of men. You know, let's just kind of think this through just for a moment. Those who have the power to wield judgment. Now, obviously, everyone who was passing judgment didn't have the power to do so. You know, if, if it is King Saul, for example, and he's got his men around him, they just simply are, are acting in agreement with him, against him, and echo, echoing basically what King Saul is saying, right? That's what they're doing. But King Saul has that power as a king. You know, uh, any person who goes to trial and faces a judge, you know, that person's life is in that judge's hands. The jury, in our, in our system, of course, it's the jury and the judge, the jury passing the verdict and then the judge determining the sentence. You know, the jury may make a recommendation, but this person's life is in the hands of others who are going to pass a judgment that is going to affect that person's life tremendously. Mo the more serious the crime, you know, the more seriously affected his life is going to be, right? So as th those who are in judgment have some, what we could call, godlike powers in that sense in determining a person's future, right? There's an issue of, um, I think we want to be careful in the way we use this word, but there's an issue of sovereignty that these folks have over this person's life. He has to, this person has to submit to everything that comes through the judgment and then, of course, the sentence that is passed. So from that perspective, you can see why that word might be an appropriate word to use, but it has to do with judgment that is passed on a person in the context of those who are enemies, as David writes this. And he's asking the question, asking the question, do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? Do you judge uprightly? Now, David writing this, he understands, he knows that God does indeed judge uprightly. These are mere men. These are people who have placed themselves in a position like God to pass judgment and give the penalty that they think is necessary. And as King Saul had stated, he wants David removed from the face of the earth. He wants to destroy him acting like a God. And so, just from that perspective, I think we can see where that, that's coming from. But, but let's look at this idea about the, uh, of the uh, upright judgment. You know, this question that is asked, is your judgment righteous? And actually, we see in the second verse that David answers the question, no, you're not. But do you judge uprightly? We, we see that Jesus, uh, speaking in John chapter 7, 
He's speaking to the Jewish leaders. And in John 7, beginning in verse 21 through verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, Abraham specifically, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, because the law of Moses said on the eighth day uh, a baby boy is to be circumcised, if it falls on a Sabbath, they're going to do that so that they don't break the law. But they're doing, but look what Jesus continues to say here. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a complete I made I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You know there's more to it than meets the eye. We're not to judge according to appearance. Even when David was chosen to be the next king after Saul, when Samuel went to Jesse's home, we, we see that story in 1 Samuel, of course, and in that 16th chapter. And, and when that takes place, as Samuel gets Jesse and tells him, get all your sons here, and he got all of them there except for David. David was out there watching the sheep. He's just a teenager at the time. Uh, and um, the Lord just refuses the, the, the first seven of his seven older brothers and Remember that the Lord spoke to, to, to Samuel saying that don't judge by appearance. I judge from the heart. A man looks at the outward appearance, but I judge looking at the heart. We can't do that. I can't look into your heart, and you can't look into mine. However, the lives that we lead give some kind of a clue as to what's in the heart. Um, David, in answering this question in verse 2, said, No, in your heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. Jesus, again, in the book of Matthew, in, verses, uh, in chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, said this as and the context here is that the Jewish leaders were, were, were kind of bagging on, the, on the Jesus' disciples because they didn't go through their cer ceremonial washings before they ate their food. And so they asked Jesus, why do your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? And, and so Jesus has some words for them in regard to that, finishing with these words. And so he said, I did one work, and you all, excuse me, I'm looking at the wrong verses uh, but those, verse 18 and Matthew 15, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. Jesus was saying that it's not what goes into a man. If you eat out of dishes that have not been ceremonially cleansed according to your ceremonies, that's not going, that doesn't make any difference whatsoever. It, make, it doesn't matter. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but, but, it, but it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. 
because what comes out of a man comes from his heart. This is what Jesus is saying here. For In verse 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And what Jesus is doing is much what we talked about this past Sunday when we were talking about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Uh, as he was speaking against the Jewish leaders and they're following all of the rules and regulations and ceremonies and, and, and traditions that they had established. Not necessarily what God had established. And that's what Jesus is dealing with, with here. It's, it's the religious rituals that men and women can look toward so much and believe that somehow if I do this, somehow if I'm faithful here, somehow if I do that, I'll be okay with God. But it's an issue of relationship. It's an issue of the heart. You know, um, might we always remember whether we're dealing with blessings or whether we we're dealing with, with difficult things, whether we're difficult dealing with uh, uh, sin in somebody's life or in our own life or with, you know, uh, obedience and faithfulness to God's word. You know, the, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. Always. Always. That never fails. And so we've got to understand that that's what God is interesting, interested in our own lives. He's interested in our hearts. Not so much what we do, but our hearts. But if our hearts are right, we will do those things that he's called us to. We'll do those things that are right in his sight. Remember, uh, and I, I talked about this this past Sunday, you know, the the idea of the commandments that, that God gives to us, the 613 commandments in the Old Testament that are, what, what the, uh, that were a part, that are part of the law, um, all the commandments uh, are, are, are there. And, and Jesus was asked, of course, by a scribe one day, uh, a Rabbi, which is the greatest of all the commandments? You guys are familiar with this. And the Lord said, well, the greatest of all commandments is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. So the greatest commandments are, are those of love, loving God, and the second is loving people. Let's never get those confused or, or backwards. But I think we can have a tendency to perhaps love a person so much that we begin to do something or help them in a way or think maybe we're helping them in such a way that is not really consistent with God's word. And we're actually going to be harming them because we're not loving God first. Faithful first to God and then faithful to people. Loving God first, loving other people. And of course, Jesus said that if that, that, that uh, Jesus came as the one who uh, fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. And if we love, we will fulfill the law. All we have to do is keep our eyes on, this, on Jesus 
watch how he loves us, love other people the same way, we will fulfill the law. And David speaks out here in this second verse about how these enemies of his, these who are uh, passing judgment on him, unrighteously, as he's already answered out, he said, you, you, in your heart you work wickedness, wickedness, you weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. I mean, it, it's all planned out. It's very meticulously planned out, even as somebody might weigh something in a scale. You know, it's just they, they take great care to make sure that it's, that, that it's all even and everything. Um, and, and these workers of wickedness are taking great care in making their plans. The wicked are estranged from the womb. So, so, so these, these uh, verses here, 3, 4, and 5, basically speaks about the, the, the source of this wickedness is the idea that they're, they're estranged from the womb, I mean, from the point of birth, as the second line says. As, they, as soon as they are born, they go astray speaking lies. They're estranged from truth, estranged from God, from the get-go, from the moment of birth. That, that's basically what he's saying. And, and this, this really speaks to us in regard to the reality of the sin nature that we were born with. The sin nature that we're born with. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, when we talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God, and this is, this is what we see here in this psalm, don't we? As David points out these workers of wickedness, he basically cries out to God in verses 6 through 9 that he would destroy them. That he would that he would bring his vengeance upon them, and then verses uh, ten and eleven, the the reward of the righteous is seen. But the idea of the wrath of God, the reality that that judgment is going to be poured out at some point in time, and as we consider the truths in the Scripture, isn't it isn't it true? Isn't it right that basically? Any person who is going to endure the wrath of God, it's just kind of like, that's the most natural thing in the world. Because by nature, we all really are children of wrath. Born with a sin nature and deserving to receive the wrath of God. But then we see in the beginning of verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2, after Paul writes, and we're by nature children of wrath just as the others, but God. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us. Because of that mercy and his love, Jesus came. Romans 5.8 tells us that that that. We, we, we see the love of God demonstrated. The love of God is demonstrated toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's only because of Jesus that we don't have to experience the most natural thing in the world, and that's the being judged for our own sinfulness. Jesus took that for us, right? 
He's called us to see that, to understand who he is, what he did, understand who we are, what we have done, what we are, and we have placed our faith and our trust in him. He says that the poison, their poison, the, the poison of, of these judgments is like the poison of a serpent. Now, David had spoken in verse 3 about speaking lies. So he's referring to, you know, words that are spoken. He's referring to the tongue, right? Um, their poison is like a, the poison of a serpent. James 3.8 tells us that no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That's what we see in the tongue. That's what we all have to deal with. That's why we say things that sometimes we don't, that we shouldn't say. And often we'll say when we say something we shouldn't say in the heat of a moment in an argument with, with a, a, a friend, perhaps a, a spouse, perhaps a sibling, um, a, a brother or sister in the Lord, whatever it may be. And it's getting kind of hot and we say something that is real, just really, really mean and cruel. And then we'll stop and say, oh, I'm, you know, when it's all over with and you think about it, and you, I mean, you come back and say, you know, I really didn't mean to say that. That's what we'll say. I would beg to differ. I think what is meant when we say, I didn't really mean to say that, is like, you know what, I had lost control of myself and I normally wouldn't have allowed myself to said that. That's really what it is because it came from the heart. You know, when it was said, we meant every word of it. And then we're sorry that we said it and then we go and say that. But it's like just realizing this is, this is who I am apart from Christ, right? This is who I am apart from his help. And so the idea of, 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 of receiving that wrath and, and the idea also of, of this tongue that can't be tamed, James speaks of that. Also speaking of the, the idea of, uh, of this deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Have ever, anyone of you ever seen one of those like, Anywhere, I mean, uh, some kind of a performance, maybe a, a, a circus or something like that. Anyone seen a, a charmer with a cobra coming out of the basket? How many have? A few of you have? Yeah, I, I, I visited India a number of years ago and saw that. I mean, they're on the sidewalk there, I mean, everywhere, you know, and, and they got these, these snakes and these... Uh, um, woven um, baskets and um, they'll, they'll, they'll charm the snake and they'll come out and it's, it's trippy, it really is. You know, thinking, I mean, if this snake, I mean, was really thinking according to what his nature is, he would be biting this guy who's wanting to come out of that. And it's like, I don't want to get near that thing. I'm staying like 80 feet away from this. You know, it's like, it's, it's crazy. But, the idea of the charming ever so skillfully. You know, the, the charmer is able to hold this power over this cobra. 
and, and, and really what David is, is liking that too is the power that the Lord has over us by his spirit and through his word. But if we won't listen and we don't take heed, we stop our ears like this cobra that, that is in, in this example. You know, we're not going to be charmed by God and we're just going to do our own thing and act according to our nature. Like David is speaking of this, of this cobra. It's interesting to see those kinds of things. But the snakes just simply will not listen. Not listening to the charmer, which, by the way, is its master in the context there, right? Well, we can do the same thing, can't we? Let's be careful. Verses 6 through 9. I love this. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break their teeth. A man after God's own heart. You know what, guys? When we talk about David being a man after God's own heart, sometimes we misjudge what that means. We, we mean that he's going to be just very gentle and kind. Now, now those, are fruit, th those are part of the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness and kindness. Definitely, they, they are. But David, as a warrior, is talking about his enemy who's trying to kill him. And, and, and this is a very colorful way of saying, Lord, stop them. Destroy them. I'm yours. Protect me. They are after me. Might you have your vengeance over them? I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. But in a very colorful way, you know, Break their teeth in their mouth, oh God. You know, isn't it true that if, if you witness a fight, uh, maybe an MMA fight, and then midway through the fight you see one of the guys spitting out his teeth, you kind of know who's losing, <laughs> right? Um, that, that's a very colorful way of saying that, Lord, have your victory over them. Hold them under your power. Um, and so, but that, that, that's something, I, it just cracks me up when I see that. Break their teeth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Even the young lions in their, in their swiftness and in their power, in their might. Break out their fangs. So the warriors, Give no heed, Lord, to who they are in terms of their might and their power. Just smash them in the mouth and break their teeth. Stop them. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. Verse 7. Uh, just the, the wash them away like, like a river would wash away. You know, I mean, whenever we see a... Uh, unfortunately, on, on TV sometimes we'll see when there's a lot of rain in some particular area and it's getting flooded out or we see a tsunami and... Homes being washed away by the, the swiftness of the water. That's what's being talked about here. Right? Flow away as the waters which run continually. You know, might the waters, the power of waters, is like waters washing them away. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Lord, would you render their weapons useless? Would you render their weapons 
useless. In Psalm 3, which is a psalm of David, verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. And as he speaks about the weapons, this is a, a, just a prayer that David is praying. Um, as you guys know, I, I've been to uh, Africa a couple times, serving there with uh, uh, Pastor Wes Bentley and Far-Reaching Ministries, and been, been able to spend some time with the, uh, the, the chaplains of the South Sudanese Army. And they all have been in warfare. They've been in firefights. They, they've been on rescue missions. Um, by the way, I, along with several other pastors, received something from uh, Wes toward the end of last week. Toward the end of last week, uh, he said that uh, Far-Reaching ministry, Ministries has rescued, I think the number was 844 people out of Afghanistan since this thing happened there with Af Afghanistan. 844. Isn't that a blessing? It's a blessing that, that they've been able to be used by God in that way. But being there uh, in South Sudan with these men and hearing them tell some of their stories, they will say that they know that God has changed the path of bullets to save them. Because that's the only way that could explain how they didn't get hit. God just changed the direction. I was there, I was in their sights, they fired, they missed. And it, it, there are too many of them, that happens too many times for that to be just simply bad marksmanship on the, on the part of the, the, the soldiers, uh, our, our, our enemies, you know. Um, they, they are convinced that God has changed the direction of bullets that have been fired uh, at, at them. You know, and, I, and I say that as, as, as a means of just sharing with you their faith in God. They pray their, pray their prayers. They believe he's going to protect them. And he does, even to the point some of them are sure that that's happened. Changing the direction of bullets. Um, and then we see this. Let them be like a snail, which melts away as it goes like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Now, he uses a very tragic circumstance here, the, uh, a woman giving um, birth to a child who's stillborn. Um, but he cites about how they will not see the sun. But this idea of the snail melting away as it goes, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Do, smells, do, do, do snails actually melt? Well, they will. They will. I, I looked it up, and I, and I found that back in 2021, last year, in August of 2021, in Sicily, it got so hot that, that on, a, on a snail farm, snails were just melting. A snail farm, right? That sounds funny, doesn't it? A snail farm. They're growing snails. Escargot, right? I'm not sure what you say in, in, in Italian. I don't know what escargot is in Italian. Anyway, yeah, they, they, and, and 
the the owner of this farm was was took a little snail shell and inside was just some hard stuff in there the the the, the snail had melted had melted and and just got connected with this this the uh, shell itself and got so hot it was recorded at uh, 124 degrees Fahrenheit in Sicily, which is the hottest temperature ever recorded in Europe. If you ever want to ask anybody that did a trivia, that was it. In August of 2021 in Sicily. There you have it. So hot it melted the snails. Anyway, but yeah, that, that does indeed happen. And I don't know if people were, cr- I, I don't remember that happening. It, did you ever, did you guys hear that? Do you remember the hearing that a year ago, last August? I don't remember either. And I don't know if people were c- crying about global warming, but David knew about it 3,000 years ago. Just saying. Okay. And then verse 9, before your pots can feel the burning thorns... He shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. So in his wrath, which is a living wrath that never dies, this is going to happen. Before your pots, and he's, he's, he's directing his words to the, his enemies here, these judges. These who are acting in wickedness. Um, we, we, we saw that spoken of in verses, um, well, verse 2, the, the weighing out their violence in the earth and so forth. Um, basically, what David is saying there, before your pots can feel the burning thorns, it, it, the, the burning thorns would be the fire underneath the pot as the meal, the meat perhaps has been thrown in, into the pot and they're getting ready to cook their meal. And he's saying, your pots, before your pots can feel the burning thorns, before your pot gets hot enough to begin to cook your meal, he's going to take them all away with a whirlwind. You're going to find yourself being judged. You're not even going to be able to enjoy the fruit of your victory that you won in such a wicked way because your wickedness is being judged. You are being judged for your wickedness. That's basically what he's saying there. The pulpit commentary said this about that. It said that, The general meaning seems to be that before the wicked judges can enjoy the fruits of their wickedness, the fierce wrath of God will come upon them like a tempest and sweep both both them and the produce of their villainy away. And so the wicked not being able to enjoy the fruit of their victory that they won in their wickedness, in their wicked deeds. Verses 10 and 11, the reward of the righteous. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And that, that's just a colorful way of saying that, that, the, that the victory is going to be so real that the, the blood is going to be uh, like j- just running like water. And we could wash our feet in them if, we, if it would actually clean them kind of a thing. Um. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. We, we've run into this with the Psalms before. You know, the, these imprecatory Psalms, these Psalms in which the psalmist is writing that his enemies be destroyed. And even the idea of righteousness, though those who are righteous rejoicing with the destruction 
of the enemy. I like the way Spurgeon writes about that. He said, He, the righteous, who is rejoicing, will have no hand in meeting it out, meeting out the vengeance. Neither will he rejoice in the spirit of revenge, but his righteous soul shall acquiesce in the judgments of God, and he shall rejoice to see justice triumphant. And that, that, that's right along the lines of what I've shared with you previously as we've looked at psalms and, and uh, prayers from other psalms beforehand like this. It's not that we rejoice in the death of a wicked person. God himself doesn't even rejoice in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their evil ways. That's what he says. That's what he wants. Because as God knows, of course, and we know because he's taught us that every wicked person, if that wicked person does not turn toward Jesus Christ, then that person is lost forever. God does not see that as a good thing, nor should we, yet, yet when it happens, there's a reality to the fact that righteousness is being served. Justice is being served. Because our God is just, and because He is righteous, and when He, when, when he meets out His judgment, when, when He uh, um, destroys the wicked... It's the right thing. It is the right thing. And by the way, when that right thing takes place, we're safer. In fact, when our enemy is judged in that way, that, no, that enemy is no longer there to fight against us, we're safer. It's part of God's protection. That, that righteousness. So it's like two sides of the coin, right? And, and we, we want to be careful in the way that we rejoice. We can sorrow for the soul that is lost, but, re, but rejoice that righteousness and justice are being served, are winning. I think that, that's a good thing. Does that, that make sense to you guys? That, that, that's the way we need to approach those kinds of things. So that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. You know, another thing is that Spurgeon wrote in relation to this is that he said that we shall at the last say amen to the condemnation of the wicked and feel no disposition to question the ways of God with the impenitent. Those who, of course, do not uh, uh, repent. <coughs> Excuse me. Revelation 19, 1 to 5. Listen to this. This is at the end of Revelation. John writing says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Now, the 18th chapter is God having victory over the great harlot, Babylon. Okay. After these things I heard a loud voice of, of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot, 
who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her blood, on her, the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. That's how we're going, that, that's where we're going to be toward the end of uh, the, the events of Revelation before the new heaven and the new earth are brought to us. Um, as we see this idea of the, the, the blood of the wicked the, uh, and the reward for the righteous, this reward for the righteous, Isaiah 3.10 says, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. And we're going to close with Romans 6, verses 20 to 23. Paul writing, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a great way to end, I think. We the righteous, um, walking in this world where we see a lot of sin, we see a lot of wickedness, we see a lot of evil. We see a lot of things going on around us that shouldn't be, that are not the way that God intended them to be upon creation. You know, when he placed Adam and Eve in that Garden of Eden, sin wasn't something that he ordained, but he prepared for it. And because he did, we have the gift of eternal life. So might we be thankful for the gift of God. Might we walk in thanksgiving because he as a righteous and holy God in his righteousness saw a way to righteously judge our sin, to place our sin upon his son, made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We've received that. I pray that every day we walk thankfully for that. And if we live lives thank, uh, uh, thankfully with hearts of gratitude, there's going to be a lot of joy coming from us. And regardless of the things that are going on in our lives, we will just simply, and the things that we say we see going on around us, we'll just be simply saying, but God, but God. Because in the end, we know where we're going to be. Amen? And Father, thank you for that truth. Thank you that we know. Thank you that you've shown us. Thank you that you've won the victory through Jesus on that cross, bringing to us that gift, the gift of eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for that. Have your way with us now, Lord, we pray.
God, we pray that you would have your hand upon us, go before us, as we continue to walk with you the rest of this week, the rest of this month, and the rest of this year. Really, Lord, for the rest of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your love and mercy. Through Jesus, our Lord and Savior, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.